This is They Create Worlds, episode 108, Adventuring with LucasArts, part 1. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. This time, at long last, we finally get to tell you what everyone really wants to know. LucasArts. Wait, Lucas what? I have no idea what you're talking about. You bring this up last week, you bring this up this week, as if this is something that I know about and something we're supposed to be doing an episode on. Why do you keep bringing this up? I don't even know LucasArts. Is that like pictures of George Lucas? I, I, why do you keep bringing this up? Well, because I really, really like adventure games. And I just sat back, relaxed, and went, I want to know more about Monkey Islands and Day of the Tentacle and that other game. Not ringing any bells. Not ringing any bells? Okay, well, maybe this will ring a bell first. I know exactly what will. And that will be the wonderful people who actually won your book. Oh, yes, we have winners, because that contest closed. We had to wait a few days past February 1st. Obviously, this episode is airing many days after February 1st, but in real time, it's only being recorded a short amount of time after February 1st. So we had to wait a few days for Patreon to actually charge to make sure that we followed our own rules of people who were paying customers in Patreon to qualify for that first drawing. But we have drawn winners and we have drawn three winners for this book thing that I've written and people should check out if they like video game history. They create worlds, the story of the people and companies that shape the video game industry. Available at Amazon directly from the publisher CRC Press, and from other major online retailers. But enough about me. Tell us about our wonderful winners, Jeff. Who are they? All right, I've already contacted them and got permission for using their names in the podcast and all that other fun stuff. Our Patreon winner is Bob Perrin. Very good. He's our Patreon winner. We had just over the line to get the two books for the general drawing, so we had two lucky winners. One of the winners goes by his Twitter handle, at DRPGbook. And our other winner is an international one from the Netherlands, Max Bugelstitz. I'm probably horribly mispronouncing that. My apologies. However, Google tells me to pronounce these things. Anyway, congratulations to all of our winners. And after I sort out some shipping issues and whatever else needs to be done, off into the mail they will go. Yes, the books themselves are already in our possession, so we don't have to wait for that. It's just a matter of figuring out all the logistics. All the fun logistics. Now that we have the book and contest winners out of the way, maybe that jogged your memory on this thing that we're supposed to talk about. This (laughs) wonderful company that brought us entertainment and Star Wars. They brought us Star Wars at one point. They did, but we're not talking about that. We're not... No, because even though they brought us Star Wars, they never brought us a Star Wars adventure game. But uh, yes, we had meant to cover LucasArts last week. Uh, There just wasn't time to throw stuff together at the last minute the way I always do. So we went ahead and moved up the uh, idea of doing a, a reading from the book that we had already planned. But now there's been time, there's been research, there's been monkeys some of the three-headed variety. So uh, it is time to cover kind of a broad overview of LucasArts Adventure Games and kind of what LucasArts Adventure Games meant to really the entire concept of, of game design in general, not just adventure game design, and how they rose and fell over the period of uh, just about a decade, really. But they were so popular back in the late 80s, early 90s. Well, uh, yes and no. They uh, certainly struck a chord with a certain segment of the population. Certainly you and I remember many of those games fondly, as do some of our other friends. In the United States, they were always dwarfed in sales by Sierra's output. They were not failures. I mean, they were successful products, but they weren't hugely successful products. In Europe, they did a little better. 
Some of them were actually quite big hits in Europe, though. During that period of time, a hit on the PC or on the Amiga in Europe would not have uh, been as big a hit as a hit game in the U.S. would be. They definitely have fans around the world, and they were definitely very popular in certain parts of the world, but never quite the commercial success that one would think of with all the nostalgia for them today. But no doubt, very well-designed games and very important to the evolution of video games generally. It always struck me that a lot of the LucasArts games were more desirable, at least in my mind, because you didn't have that thing with Sierra with the constant death things or getting trapped in horrible ways of being locked in a no-win situation. Oh, absolutely. And that's what we're going to talk about in terms of the design um, as we move along here. But just in terms of commercial sales, Sierra was just a bigger company with a bigger reach. And uh, LucasArts, Lucasfilm Games slash LucasArts was always just kind of this weird little appendage of the Lucas Empire that probably never should have existed in the first place, just from a rational, logical point of view. I think that inhibited it in some ways from a commercial standpoint. But like I said, they were still good and they still made money. I mean, they weren't flops until the end. But it's just, you know, they were always kind of the little brother from a commercial perspective. Where did George Lucas decide to go, you know, I want to make a video game company? So this will not be a general history of Lucasfilm Games uh, slash LucasArts. That could certainly be its own episode or two at some point in the future. But just to briefly set the stage, Lucas made the Star Wars movies, and Lucas made a lot of money on Star Wars movies, because, of course, very famously, he kept the merchandising rights, which had never mattered in a movie before. And then, surprise, in Star Wars, they mattered. He started experimenting in a lot of different directions in the early 1980s. I mean, he'd always been a technology guy. Industrial Light and Magic was established by him to create those Star Wars effects that were literally effects that could never have been done before, that had never existed before. And he started doing research into how computers could aid special effects. And so there was a Lucasfilm computer group started. The computer that that uh, group eventually made was called the Pixar And then later, when he had to sell the computer group, they took the name of that product they had produced, the Pixar, and became known as Pixar. But Pixar actually started within Lucasfilm way back in the day. So he was experimenting in a lot of different directions. He had Industrial Light and Magic. He had Skywalker Sound. He had the uh, computer group doing computer graphics. He was not a gamer. His friend Steven Spielberg... We, of course, talked about just very recently in our E.T. episode was very much into games and was very much a gamer. Lucas never really understood that world. He wasn't excited by that world. But he was a big, bold filmmaker using computer technology. And Atari was a big, bold video game company with aspirations to be a dominant player in that industry. You kind of had Atari going to Lucas and being like, hey, we should do some game stuff together. And then Lucas being like, well, I've got computer people, so I suppose I could peel a couple of people off this larger computer group and have them do games. So it was this kind of combination of Atari doing some investment and being interested in product and Lucas having some computer people that he was starting to hire anyway that kind of caused this Lucasfilm Games thing to come into existence in 1982. And it was very small, and it really wasn't meant to be much of anything. Steve Arnold, who was one of the early general managers of it, he wasn't there from the very beginning, but he was brought in actually from Atari a couple of years later, said that basically their mandate in the very early days was be the best, don't lose money. And that was it. They didn't really care about it very much. So you had this group that was brought together. They hired several programmers. They kind of let them freewheel and pitch ideas and things that they were interested in. And they released a couple of games that were kind of quirky little games, Ball Blazer in particular, kind of a sports game, one-on-one competition. I liked that game on the Commodore 64. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ball Blazer and then Rescue on Fractalus, which was not quite a shooting game because it involved also 
rescuing things, but kind of this cockpit view action game. They did these first two games, and that was fine. They weren't huge hits, but they were fine. They didn't lose money. Then they got into doing military simulations, and they had some very successful military simulations in the mid-'80s. But it was a small group. It was a lean group. It was basically just an experimental group. But then in the mid-'80s, things at Lucasfilm started to change because George Lucas got a divorce. And George Lucas's divorce was very expensive. And there was a real shift within the entire Lucasfilm apparatus towards, okay, we need to be moneymakers now. The pie in the sky stuff, we just need to stop with. I mean, this is the period of time when he sold Pixar, because even though they were doing groundbreaking work, they weren't there yet. They weren't ready to be a money-making operation yet, and he couldn't afford to carry something at this juncture that was not going to be some kind of moneymaker. Now, the games group was small potatoes. The games group was barely on the radar of the higher-ups at the company. It wasn't in danger of being sold off like Pixar was, but there was definitely a sense, I think, that it needed to be less experimental and more, let's put some product together that's going to do well. And, you know, before this time, they didn't do any licensed products. They didn't do Star Wars products. They didn't do Indiana Jones products. Those rights were given to other companies. Atari got a lot of those rights for the arcades and for consoles. We talked about the Raiders of the Lost Ark game. Of course, there was the famous Star Wars arcade game, and there were follow-ups to that, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. There was a Temple of Doom arcade game. They had all those rights. And afterwards, I think, after this period when they decided they kind of had to get real on the financial side was when they decided, okay, we've got to do maybe some of this stuff in-house, first of all. Second of all, the games group needs to kind of become a real company, a real division that's doing some money. Pull its own weight. Yeah, pull its own weight. In this period, they played around a little bit with some adventure game stuff. Most famously, the Labyrinth adventure game. This was in 86, based on the movie. And even at this early juncture... They were starting to experiment with going against the grain of what a current adventure game was. At that time, text adventures were still kind of around. They weren't the commercial force they had been even just a couple of years before that. Kind of the high watermark was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in 1984. But in 86, Infocom was still around. Text adventures were still a thing. But they were starting to be overtaken by the graphical adventures the cartoon animated games in the Sierra mold, the King's Quest stuff. But King's Quest, of course, still used a parser. It was fully animated and graphical, but the interface was still a parser. So with Labyrinth, David Fox and the people working on that at Lucasfilm Games, Lucasfilm Games, they were called at the time, took the approach, first of all, of doing a kind of Wizard of Oz moment. The beginnings of the game, before you, the main character protagonist, is pulled into the fantasy world, because it starts in our world, in the quote-unquote real world, just as the movie did, that part of it was actually done as a text adventure. It's only a very small portion of the game, but it's actually text descriptions and text commands. And then, in a very meta moment, you actually go into a movie theater, because you're not following exactly the plot of the movie. You go into a movie theater and there's David Bowie up on the screen, Goblin King, and sucks you into the world of the movie. And at that point, it becomes an animated graphic adventure. So it's like very much a Wizard of Oz kind of thing where Wizard of Oz starts in black and white, as in the traditional movies of the day, and then moves into the new spectacular hotness of Technicolor once you get to the fantasy world to show you're someplace different. So that was interesting. They did this interface. It wasn't quite point and click. But I don't know how best to describe this. But conversely, it wasn't fully a parser either. Right. But they did have this group of commands, of verbs that you could cycle through. It wasn't point and click, so you're not cycling through with a mouse, you're cycling through with the keyboard. But you had verbs you could cycle through and objects you could cycle through. And by cycling through those, it was no longer a parser because you didn't have to guess what to type in. But it wasn't a point and click because you're not using a mouse and you're not 
choosing from a list and just doing clicks to do it. It's still keyboard control. Somewhere in between. Obviously, on the Commodore 64, a GUI interface or multimedia interface wasn't something that was going to be common. So even though there were mice eventually on the Commodore, that's not a system you're going to pioneer a GUI interface on. But this just goes to show that even at this early date, they were thinking. Because Labyrinth is kind of moving towards that. Labyrinth's kind of an outlier. The real start of what we consider to be the Lucasfilm games or the LucasArts adventure tradition comes in 1987 with the game Maniac Mansion. That's really the starting point. Very popular game. Absolutely. It starts, of course, with Ron Gilbert, who is so important to just everything that has happened in adventure game design and is really important to game design generally, which I'll talk about in more detail a little bit later. So Ron Gilbert, like a lot of early guys, he kind of fell into video game programming almost by accident. He was from rural Oregon, but had been programming since he was a teenager on a programmable calculator. His father brought home a Texas Instruments calculator, and that was his introduction to programming. He went off to college at Eastern Oregon State and bought a Commodore 64 and discovered that the basic interpreter that came with the Commodore 64 in no way accessed the advanced graphical and sound features of the Commodore 64. And just as an aside, the reason for that is that Jack Trammell was a cheap, cheap man who didn't want to pay more for things than he had to. And way back when they did the Commodore PET, their first computer, he got a really ridiculously cheap deal on BASIC. He's one of the few people that ever hoodwinked Microsoft, because, of course, Microsoft was the big name in languages before they were the big name in operating systems. And he got a really ridiculously good deal on the basic. And that's just about the only time that Bill Gates was ever outdone in a business negotiation. But this was very early in Microsoft, very early in Bill Gates. That's why that happened. But you see, if he ever had to have an updated and more capable version of BASIC, he'd have to go back and negotiate a new deal to use a newer version of BASIC. And Jack Trammell wasn't going to do that. So he just kept using the same BASIC in every computer they did, even though this BASIC was now woefully, woefully out of date because he had a cheap deal and he didn't want to pay any more money for BASIC. Trammell never really understood software. He came out of the hardware business and he never got software. So the basic, the chip with the Commodore 64 was really bad because it was made essentially for a computer that was a lot less capable. So he got together with a friend and created an extension, a graphical basic extension, just to make the computer more robust, just to make programs on the computer more robust. That got the attention of a company called Hessware, human engineered software, but it went by Hessware, H-E-S-Ware. Hessware was very briefly a very big deal. I, I don't know that it's a company we'll ever really cover because they came and went so quickly. Founded by a guy named Jay Balakrishnan. For a couple of years, they were a pretty big publisher. So Gilbert and uh, the friend of his that he worked on this with, Tom McFarlane, approached Hessware with the program. They were so impressed that they offered Gilbert a job. So Gilbert dropped out of school to go work for Hessware. He ended up at the company, didn't stay there long because it was pretty soon after that that the company fell apart. But it just so happened that, again, this graphics program, basic program was so impressive that word of it was getting around in the communities. And Steve Arnold, the general manager at Lucasfilm Games, had heard about him and his talent. And so he actually called him up and offered him a job porting games because, you see, As I had said, LucasArts, Lucasfilm Games, as it was called in the beginning, was formed partially as a partnership with Atari and partially after Atari invested some money in Lucasfilm, the parent company. They made their games on Atari computers. Those early products that came out, like Rescue on Fractalus and Ballblazer, came out on the Atari 8-bit platform. Well, that ended up being a huge mistake because, of course, Atari completely fell apart in this time period. And the Atari 8-bit line was not extended effectively, and uh, the Commodore 64 and Jack Trammell just completely destroyed 
the company completely destroyed Atari and home computers, and the Commodore 64 was now the leading platform, and the Atari 8-bit platforms were basically dead at this point. I mean, they still made Atari 8-bits for several years after this, but they were effectively dead as a viable product in the marketplace. So Lucasfilm Games was in a real lurch here, and they needed programmers to port their games to the Commodore 64, because that was the only logical path forward and the only viable path forward. And because Gilbert made Graphics Basic for the Commodore 64, they knew he was a hotshot Commodore programmer, and that's exactly what they needed. So that's what Ron Gilbert was brought in to do, was to port games and nothing else. So he ports a couple of games to the Commodore 64, and then he's kind of in limbo. So he was a contractor. He wasn't hired into the company at this point. He ports the games. He's basically like, well, what happens next? And it's kind of like, I mean, it's not quite don't call us, we'll call you. He's contracting with them, so he's kind of allowed to hang out. He's kind of allowed to be in the building, but there's no work for him, and nobody seems interested in giving him more work. So I think as a matter of self-preservation as much as anything, he starts coming up with his own idea for a game, because he figures at this point he's going to need to pitch something to them in order to hang around and keep getting paid, which is something that he would very appreciate having happen. He comes up with a game idea that he called, I was a teenage lobot. He described it as a science fiction role-playing strategy adventure game. That covers just about every genre that was active at the time, right? Just about. You got science fiction in there. You got role-playing games. We like those on computers. And strategy games, too. And adventuring games. It's all there. The pitch document for this is actually online. So we can put that into the show notes. Ron Gilbert is a very active blogger. He actually blogged about this at his uh, Yield Grumpy Gamer blog and put up that original pitch document. This was kind of a riff on old B science fiction movies like Plan 9 from Outer Space. It was also a riff on that particular kind of slasher horror film where all the teenagers get together and go to the haunted place and are never heard from again. It's pulling from kind of camp. It's pulling from B sci-fi. It's pulling from cheesy stuff. And it starts taking shape, this idea of this mansion with this crazy family, and they're performing experiments, and all of this kind of gets put into this thing. And he's working uh, in collaboration with an artist at the company who has a very similar sensibility to him, named Gary Winnick. They're thinking of things like Plan 9 from Outer Space. They're thinking of things like Little Shop of Horrors. Pulling from a lot of different kind of cult and B-movies that they like to form this kind of crazy world. And the mansion part of it comes in part because at this point in time, Lucasfilm Games has moved out to the Skywalker Ranch, the very famous headquarters for Lucasfilm that George Lucas built to resemble a sprawling country manor or ranch that had been built up over time. It was all a fabrication. I mean, he just built this structure from scratch when he wanted to relocate out to the countryside, but he built it with this story behind it of being this kind of country house that had built up over time, and so that's how it was constructed to appear. So they were already in this mansion, and in fact, particularly the library of the Lucasfilm mansion of the Skywalker Ranch was the template for the library and the mansion in Maniac Mansion. That kind of comes in from there, and they've got all these ideas percolating. They're not sure what kind of game it's really going to be. As I said, he described it as a science fiction role-playing strategy adventure game. But then over Christmas 1985, he was with family, and he saw his eight-year-old cousin playing King's Quest. Now, in 1985, King's Quest was still pretty new. King's Quest just came out in 1984. And it really only started to become a hit in 1985 because it had been originally, we talked about this in our Sierra episode, it had been originally on the PC Junior that was a flop, but then in 1985 it was adapted for the very successful Tandy 1000. That's the point that King's Quest became a big deal. So this was very early in King's Quest's life. It was still a pretty new game at this point. 
Gilbert had never been a player of text adventures, and he wasn't really familiar with graphical adventures, but he was watching his cousin play King's Quest, and he was just appalled by both the parser and the excessive dying. We've talked about both of these things when talking about Sierra Games, and you alluded to it at the top of this very show. In Sierra Games, you die a lot. Prolifically. It's often just cruel. Some of that death is inherent to the idea of how a game should be challenging in that time period. We weren't far removed from the period of time when everything was arcade games or adaptations of arcade games and this idea that that stuff's hard to eat your quarters and so you die and that creates a challenge to make you keep coming back and spending more quarters and or in the home setting, a hard game has replayability because you have to play it more in order to succeed. So your game that would take you two hours if you knew what you were doing takes longer and you feel like you got your money's worth. All of that goes into the fact that games were unforgiving hard and often fatal, but Sierra took it to cruel extreme. You young kids with your dark souls have no clue. I want you to go and download King's Quest 3, and if you can beat the first section and leave the (laughs) wizard's house without looking up a strategy guide, then you can tell me about your wonderful dark souls. (laughs) Right. And actually, Dark Souls is a very good game to bring up as a contrast to this. Because the thing about Dark Souls is it's hard, but it's fair. Once you figure out how a particular boss works, even as it still takes you a long time to beat that boss because the game's just hard, you feel like the game is treating you fairly. You feel like you've been presented a challenge, a rational challenge, a logical, consistent challenge, and you're just working towards achieving that goal. And so even though it's challenging, it feels fair. In a Sierra game, sometimes you just die. One of the examples that I really like is Leisure Suit Larry. (laughs) So you start out in front of like a a bar, I guess, in Leisure Suit Larry, and you're on the sidewalk, and then there's a street. There's nothing in the street. There's nothing happening in the street. But if you move your character down into the street, you get run over by a car, you're dead. Now, okay, fine, streets have cars and it's not safe necessarily to cross the street, but this game gives you no indication that's going to happen. There's no traffic. You know, it's just an empty street until you walk into it and then you die. There's no indication that you shouldn't enter the street. There's nothing that says do not cross. It's just you made the choice to go that direction, you die. So then you can move to the next screen. Uh, I think to the left, but maybe it's to the right. It's been a while. Right's the alley. Left is dead. Okay, so it's right. You can move right to the next screen. I may have played that game a lot. (laughs) And it's an alley. Since you've played the game a lot, Jeff, what happens if you just innocently walk over to the alley with no chance, no indication that there'll be a problem and no chance to defend yourself? What happens? Well, if you go to the left, there's a thug that will just come over and beat you to a little pulp on the sidewalk and you have to start over again. If you go to the right, you have a little alley when you're on the side of the uh, place. There's a dumpster there and everything's perfectly fine and you can continue playing. Continue going right, and you get the same guy who will come over and beat you to a mess on the carpet. Yeah, I mean, they could have just... Put a fence there. Right, because obviously it's taking place within a limited world. It's not an open world, so they need a way to indicate that, no, you need to go into this building. But they didn't have to do it by killing you if you went any direction except the right direction. It's arbitrary. There's no warning. It's dumb. The first King's Quest wasn't necessarily quite that cruel, but it was pretty cruel. Uh, Death really did lurk around every corner. And the thing is, a lot of the death was tied to the poor control system as well. Because, again, these weren't joystick games. These weren't mouse games. They were keyboard games. They were particularly annoying keyboard games because you would press the button once in the direction you wanted to go. And that would start you walking. It wasn't that you used the arrows to move where I'm holding down the left arrow, I move left. No. Press the button once, you start moving that direction. Press the button in that direction again, and you stop. Or if you press the button in a different direction, you immediately start moving in that direction without ever stopping. That's fine for very broad movements. 
But then they make you navigate very narrow areas. And you have very little control over what your character is actually doing. You know, if you could move one step to the left and then one step up and then one step to the left and one step up with precision, that control scheme would still be more awkward than the point and click scheme. But you would have a degree of control over the character. But that's not what happens. I mean, I suppose you could theoretically hit the button in the same direction twice really fast. And that's what I did. And hope it reads both of those inputs. But maybe it will, maybe it won't. One of the first puzzles that you come across is there's a tree you have to climb, and there's a golden egg in a nest in that tree. Well, you have to go out on the branch of that tree to get that egg, and the branch is very narrow. And if you misstep... And it's isometric. Yes, and it's isometric. And if you miss it, so you're having to do diagonal movement. And if you miss a step, you fall out of that tree and die. <laughs> So there is a lot of death that feels really unfair and really arbitrary in King's Quest. And then there's the parser. Parsers are always a bit difficult because there's always that guess what the parser wants element to it. The parsers in King's Quest games were not even as robust as the parsers in an Infocom game. So the guess the parser thing really could go to extreme lengths sometimes. And my most infamous example of that for me personally, I can't remember if we talked about this in Sierra episodes or not, is King's Quest Two. King's Quest Two, you have to go to an island in the middle of a lake and Dracula's castle, because Roberta Williams always drew from popular fairy tales and public domain horror stories and et cetera, et cetera. So Dracula's castle is on this island. So you have to go there uh, at night when he's sleeping, and you have to open his coffin, and then you have to plunge a stake into his heart to kill him. Okay, so me and my friend John Lewis are playing this game back in the day, and we get on the island, and we get to him, and all of that. We open the coffin. Kill Dracula. Doesn't work. Uh, use stake on Dracula. Doesn't work. Uh, stake Dracula. Doesn't work. If you take too long, Dracula wakes up, so you don't have all the time in the world to figure out what the parser wants. Oh my god, we were stopped there for so long, not because we didn't know what to do, we absolutely knew what to do. We just didn't know how to say it. Did you ever figure it out? Yeah, I forget what the correct answer is, and <laughs> um, it's, it's been too long. But the point is, what should have been a relatively straightforward matter was made overly complicated, and it had an arbitrary death thrown in on top of it because you had a time limit from the moment you open his coffin, you only have so long to type the correct command before he wakes up. So Gilbert saw this in this game and was like, this is nonsense. He hated all of it. So he decided with this game that I'm conceptualizing basically so I don't lose my job. Mm hmm. I'm going to rebel against this type of game design. I'm going to turn I Was Teenage Lobot into an adventure game. And that adventure game is not going to have a parser. And it's not going to be full of death. Yay! So it wasn't the very first game that had a point-and-click interface. It wasn't even the very first adventure game to have a point-and-click interface. But the system he came up with was very elegant and was a much better system even than the couple of games like the ICOM games like Deja Vu had before it. You have a list of verbs. I like verbs. On the bottom of the screen. And it's a pretty contained list, even more contained than the uh, scrolling list of verbs in Labyrinth. You have objects on the screen that when you hover over them with your mouse pointer or, or joystick pointer, because this started on the Commodore 64, are identified as objects. You know, they're named in some way. I select a verb. I select an object. And if those two things work together, something happens. And if those things don't work together, nothing happens. Or you get a funny message, maybe, about why it doesn't work. A fully graphical adventure. And it was entirely reaction to King's Quest. And it's quite frankly nonsense. I was a big fan of King's Quest games when I was a kid. A lot of people were. <laughs> they were charming in their way, and you kind of overlooked the problems with them because at that time you didn't know any better. Games were hard back then. I mean, it wasn't that much different to die a million times in Ninja Gaiden or die a million times in King's Quest. They're very different kinds of gameplay, but if you're already conditioned to the idea that you're going to die a lot in a game, it doesn't feel so bad 
when it happens to you in a different context. But Ron Gilbert was the guy that was like, no, really, that's dumb. It doesn't make sense in an adventure game. This is the way you should do an adventure game <laughs> because they're about exploration and puzzle solving. They shouldn't be about dying all the time. <laughs> so he has this great idea and he comes up with this interface and he's starting to put the game together. And that's when they come up with their other really big breakthrough. This was a period of time when most games were still being done in assembly. You weren't even often doing games in a portable high-level language like C. That was starting to come in some, but basically your choices at this time for most game creation were you did it in basic, which was really slow and really clunky and really limited, or you did it in assembly, which was very fast because you were right on the metal, but was very difficult because you're not programming in anything that we would call a language at this point. You're just programming in ones and zeros. He was having trouble getting very far in creating this game because it was, you know, fairly complex and wonky concept, really, for the time, doing this graphical interface, and they're doing this mansion. They want a lot of art. They want it to look very nice. The programming is just being a chore, and he's falling further and further behind schedule. And remember, he's just a contractor at this point. There's no guarantee that Lucasfilm Games is going to keep him on. And so Steve Arnold's like, okay, you've done this proposal. The proposal's interesting. You're working on it. But it's the middle of 1986 now. You know, he pitched this in 85. And you're still nowhere close to done with it. And, you know, are you going to make a game for us or not, Mr. Gilbert? And it's like, I want to make a game, but it's, it's, it's hard. He was up to the challenge. He could do it. He could program an assembly, but working all on his own in assembly, trying to make something this complex, it's just, it's taking forever. So that's when Chip Morningstar intercedes. Chip Morningstar is one of the great unsung heroes of Lucasfilm games. He's not well known as a game designer. He's not as famous as a Ron Gilbert or a Tim Schafer the kind of ideas behind the games, but he was a masterful programmer that was very responsible for a lot of the great behind-the-scenes technical stuff that was going on at Lucasfilm Games in this time period. So Chip Morningstar basically said, well, instead of doing this in assembly, we've got this fancy Unix workstation at the company. So why don't you just create a scripting language, a high-level, very powerful scripting language that can run on our Unix system and can compile on our Unix system. So, you know, it can be very powerful and compile relatively quickly, then is capable of running on the Commodore 64 through an interpreter. Why are you doing this in assembly? If you make a really powerful scripting language, run it on the powerful computer, interpret it on the smaller computer, you'll have a powerful, capable, easy-to-program game. Problem solved. Problem solved. And obviously, it's not the first time that's ever been done. I mean, we talked about in Text Adventures, we talked about how Zork was basically made doing the same thing. (laughs) You know, We have an interpreter for Zork and Zork languages and all this other crazy stuff. But the thing that made this particularly special is, unlike a game like Zork, which waits for the player... Uh, And even later games from Infocom, which did have some things running at the same time, like Deadline, where there's other people running around in the game, uh, the scripts are still relatively straightforward. We're talking about a graphical adventure game here that is happening in real time, where stuff is happening off the screen even when you're not around. This is something that's very different in Maniac Mansion than some of the later ones, like, say, Monkey Island, because... The Edisons in the mansion, they're always doing their thing. They're moving from room to room. Part of the challenge of Maniac Mansion is not getting caught by the Edisons as you're exploring the mansion. So there's a lot happening and a lot being kept track of and a lot of scripts running at the same time. So even though an interpreter like this and a scripting language like this had been done before, it hadn't necessarily in the realm of computer games been done at this level of complexity. Because it really had to be a powerful multitasking kernel in order for this to work. Chip Morningstar helped out and, and Gilbert worked on it. And I think David Fox helped as well on the scripting. So they got a few people together and they created a scripting system for Maniac Mansion. And they very famously named it Scum. 
This is one of those situations where they very clearly came up with the acronym first and then came up with what it stood for. There was a lot of toilet humor like that. You know, it was a bunch of young guys at the company having fun. And so, you know, that kind of humor leaks in, which, you know, that's fine. They came up with SCUM, which officially stood for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. Obviously, they're being a little tortured on it because they just ignore the fact that the word four's in there. Yep. And of course, it's scum spelled with two M's instead of one M, but they wanted it to be scum. So that's how they came up with the scum system. Scum was so powerful and so easy to use that it democratized adventure game creation at the company. I mean, there's scripting involved, so there is a certain level of programming involved. But because it's just scripting, because most of the functions are already taken care of by the language itself, the amount of programming you had to do to create a game using Scum was relatively small. It allowed you to implement things very quickly, prototype things very quickly, improve things very quickly, and it allowed you to do it without having to be an absolutely brilliant programmer because Scum's doing most of the heavy lifting. So those are the two things that Maniac Mansion really contributed, this idea of a graphical user interface and this idea of using a scripting language in order to create the game. I really do believe that Lucasfilm Games in this period was really one of the first companies that was really paying attention to game design as a discipline, especially in the computer game space, the PC game space, as opposed to the arcade space or the home console space. Now, I'm not saying that they were the first or that they were unique. I mean, there were others before them. But part of the challenge, of course, on the very early computers, like I said, is that you really had to be a hotshot coder in order to be able to create the game. And the coding challenge and the limitations that you found through the coding were a big part of what dictated how that game was going to end up. People were programmers first, designers second. There are exceptions to this, and especially in Japan, they kind of split out disciplines earlier, and so you had people like Shigeru Miyamoto or Toru Iwatani that really didn't program at all and were just designing games. And even in the console space, by the end of this first generation, they had started the process of moving to specialization so that you had artists who were separate from musicians, who were separate from programmers. And in some cases, particularly at Coleco, you even had dedicated game designers. So this was starting a little bit, but I really think that in the computer game space, the PC game space, there hadn't been a lot of separating out of those disciplines yet. That was kind of to the detriment of the medium. You still had this idea that a lot of stuff was adapted from the arcades. You still had this idea that games needed to be challenging, games needed to be repetitive, games needed to make you start over or restart from a certain point over and over again in order to get your money's worth on the game because the games are really very short from start to finish due to limitations in programming, limitations in disk capacity, limitations in memory. So we make the game feel like it's worth your 20 bucks or your 30 bucks or your 40 bucks by making you do the same stuff over and over again as you figure it out. So even something that is not action oriented at all, like an adventure game, very often puts you in positions of peril where you may die or it puts you in the infamous zombie state where you've actually locked yourself out of victory but you don't realize it until two hours later when you get to a certain point and you don't have an item you need because that item's been destroyed. There are even adventure games that had started using the save and restore as gameplay features, like literally puzzles that you're unable to solve, except maybe by sheer luck, until you've actually failed the puzzle the first time. The idea of saving and reloading an earlier state is built into the gameplay. This is the kind of stuff that was happening, and I think it's because there wasn't a lot of thought or care being put into game design. There wasn't a lot of thought and care being put into the user experience. And even when some thought was being put towards that experience, there was the idea that if we're going to create something of value to the user in terms of the amount of play they get for their money, we need to make it hard. We need to make it failable just so they feel that they've been able to play the game for 20 hours. 
makes sense, right? It does make sense. And it takes someone to go against that social inertia to say, well, that's silly. No, we're going to do something different. Right. And I feel like Ron Gilbert was one of the first people to take a stand on this because he looked at something like King's Quest and he was like, why? The enjoyable part of the game is not the dying, especially when it's so arbitrary. So why don't we just do away with that? And then he democratized game development and made it easier for people who weren't pure programmers to design games by doing the whole scripting language. So those two things that he decided to do, just it's a sea change. It's positively huge. And Maniac Mansion finally comes out in 1987. You know, it's a decent sized hit for the company. Again, it pales in comparison to the Sierra games, but it does well. It's clear that this is a direction that is working for the company. It's clear that this is a direction the company wants to pursue more. But it is still flawed. So there are some things about Maniac Mansion. First of all, there are some zombie states. He really tried hard to stop you from being able to go uh, and hit a dead end. But there are still some dead ends. There are also extraneous items. There are items lying around in the mansion that you can pick up that have no use within the game. So you can beat your head against the wall using items that don't actually do anything. It is possible to lose. It is possible for, theoretically, for all your uh, kids to get captured and carted off and have no way to get them out. It doesn't just automatically kill you. Like, when your first kid gets captured, he's put in a basement in kind of a dungeon area, and you can get out of that by finding a loose brick. There's one brick in this identical sea of bricks you can push to get out. And there are other ways, using multiple characters, that you can break your kid out of jail as well metaphorical jail. But there are still ways to get yourself in an unwinnable state. He doesn't get all the way there. Part of the reason for that is they made the decision to have a large cast of characters of which the main character, Dave, always goes in the mansion. And then you have a selection of kids that you choose two other kids to go in with you to rescue the cheerleader and save the world from Dr. Fred's experiments and the meteor that has possessed him in his basement. It's complicated. They chose to have multiple protagonists, and they chose to have them all have different paths through the game. So they had to come up with a lot of different puzzles and a lot of different configurations that were winnable, because you win in completely different ways depending on who you take in with you. The combination was daunting. I mean, it increases the complexity of putting that game together exponentially. With that much to keep track of, they couldn't quite get it as refined as they would have necessarily liked because the beast was just too huge and complicated. Too many permutations for their small QA team, assuming (laughs) you even have a QA team at this time, to go through and go, oh, if I take this situation, that situation, and show the living plant monster with me, the plant monster apparently likes the potted plant over there, and that blocks the door there if it meets the potted plant before you get the thing that's behind the door. Right, exactly. That's exactly right. So it ain't perfect, but it's the beginning of this design philosophy. Where do you go from there? Lucasfilm Games clearly wants more of this because Maniac Mansion did well. Maniac Mansion was also the first game, incidentally, that Lucasfilm Games published itself. Its previous games were all published by other companies like Epics and Electronic Arts. This was the first time that they did their own publishing. They went in as an affiliated label with Activision. So Activision handled the distribution, but Lucasfilm actually did the publishing and had their name on the box. They clearly wanted more of this, but it took a little bit of time to figure out what that meant. So David Fox, who had been one of the early guys hired in the group, was the next one to create an adventure game with the SCUM system. And he had done some help in developing SCUM, as I had said earlier, and he had done some scripting in Maniac Mansion. So he took it his own direction. He did a game called Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. It was a kind of comedic tongue-in-chief spoof, just as Maniac Mansion had been a tongue-in-cheek spoof of B-movies and teenage slasher stuff and all of that kind of thing. Zach McCracken was very much a tongue-in-cheek look at New Age beliefs and conspiracy theories and alien abductions and all of this kind of thing. How did I never play this game before? (laughs) So it's the one that kind of falls through the cracks is kind of the reason why. 
the McCrackens, I suppose. But um, falls through the McCrackens. It's finicky. It's even more fiddly than Maniac Mansion. It's only one main character, but he goes on this globe-spanning adventure. So it's kind of it's opened up in scope. And that, in turn, kind of opens it up in complexity in a way that doesn't really gel. It doesn't really have that same logical, consistent feeling that even Maniac Mansion does. The plot was a little esoteric, even though that kind of stuff is definitely up your alley. It's not nearly as mainstream as some of the stuff that was being spoofed by Maniac Mansion. So the game was fine. It wasn't bad. It wasn't great. And it just kind of... It was just kind of eh, kind of a collective shrug. That happens next. Then, because they do need to be making money, the next thing they make in 1989, so McCracken's 88, Maniac Mansion 87, McCracken 88, 1989, they do Indiana Jones. They do Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The problem with that one, I mean, they're continuing to refine the scum engine. They're continuing to figure out what it means to do this kind of game. And they do have the possibility for death in it, unlike some of these others, because it's Indiana Jones. The whole stick with Indiana Jones is that he's always in mortal peril and he always just barely avoids the death. You know, he's not Superman. You know, when he jumps for a ledge, he doesn't land on his feet. He kind of starts sliding off and he's scrabbling with his hands and he catches his grip right before he's going to go over the edge. That's Indiana Jones. So if you don't have a sense of mortal peril, you don't have a real... Indiana Jones thing. It's not arbitrary death in the same way as a Sierra game. It's really a straightforward adaptation. They basically just take the movie and turn it into an adventure game. So if you've seen the movie, you know what you need to do to beat the game. It's not very inspiring. They were kind of rushed. They had to get it out very quickly to be a tie-in with the movie. And those next two efforts aren't really much to speak about. But then in 1990, they really crystallize. And there are two games that come out that year that take kind of different directions. And one of them ends up being very successful. And one of them isn't really that successful. But both of them together kind of point to the future direction of adventure games. We'll take the less successful one first. That's Loom. I don't know if you're familiar with Loom. Rings a bell. I'm not sure if I actually played it, but yeah. Because I do like a lot of adventure games, and I've watched a lot of playthroughs, especially old ones. Loom does sound familiar. Yeah, it is a bit obscure because it was not successful. It was created by a gentleman named Brian Moriarty. Brian Moriarty was one of the more interesting designers at Infocom. He made very thought-provoking games. His game Trinity, which revolves around the Trinity test the nuclear test, nuclear atomic bomb test, the Trinity atomic bomb test, goes backwards and forwards and all around in time from that point, is considered one of the more thought-provoking, more interesting adventure games ever created. And it's not really so much about puzzles as it is about the experience of it. Infocom is falling apart during this time period. A lot of people at Infocom are kind of disillusioned and want out. Lucasfilm Games knows that they really want to push this adventure game angle because that's been successful for them. So Noah Falstein at uh, Lucasfilm Games meets Brian Moriarty at a conference uh, and basically convinces him. It's like, yeah, you should come out to Lucasfilm Games. Things are great here. You can make a graphical adventure game here and it'll be great. So Brian Moriarty makes the jump to Lucasfilm Games. He's all about the simplification. So Maniac Mansion has simplified things over a King's Quest. Brian Moriarty wants to simplify things even more. There's very little puzzle solving. There's no inventory. There's no verbs. There's no commands like that. In this game, you play the sorcerer, Bob and Threadbare, who creates magic. The people in this world, the wizards of the world, create magic through music and through weaving together musical harmonies loom that's where the kind of loom thing comes from so the puzzles that are there are basically about taking these different musical spells or musical spell components and weaving them together to create effects so you're selecting them from the menu but they're they're not verbs they're just these spell pieces musical notes or colored string Mm -hmm. patterns that are supposed to represent a note 
And interestingly enough, very similar to the uh, music system in, say, Ocarina of Time. Hmm. The way it's presented is very similar, which Moriarty himself really thinks that the Ocarina of Time people copied Loom. Maybe they did. Certainly Japanese developers are aware of Western game developments. That's not something I could say with any certainty, but obviously we'll put Loom in the show notes, but you can see the similarities if you look at Loom. It's this very dark, moody, melancholy world. He really pulled from Russian ballet, particularly Swan Lake, for his visuals and his tone for the whole thing. It follows this uh, wizard, Bobbin Threadbare, and it has this very strange story about stopping chaos from destroying the Great Loom. And like I said, it's very surreal and very much based on Russian ballet, which itself is very surreal sometimes. It's a hard game to describe. I'll try to find some good videos on it. Right. But it is very much about simplifying the interface even more and simplifying the commands even more and simplifying the puzzle solving even more. The problem with that is when you take out all the puzzles, even though it's a beautiful game and the spell system is interesting, the musical system is interesting, it is a short game. Once you know what you're doing, it goes quick. Well, here's the thing. Even when you don't know what you're doing, it goes quick. Really? So I talked about how a lot of these games, like when you know the solutions to all the puzzles, you can get through them very quickly. But a typical playthrough of Loom could be completed in five hours. Really? And that's coming in fresh, and that's not looking at a walkthrough. I mean, that's just, you can get it done. Would it be more apt to say that it's something more of an interactive story that we would have today in the vein of, say, Gone Home or... The Stanley Parable or something like that? It has a little more puzzle to it than that. But yes, it's definitely moving in that direction. And quite frankly, I think the best kind of analogy would be something like Mist. Really? Mist. The difference is that Mist is long enough that you feel like you're getting a full experience. But it's all about simplifying the interface even more. So you're basically just one mouse click kind of thing and not even worrying about verbs you know, streamlining puzzles. I mean, Mist obviously has a lot of puzzles, but very streamlined. And I don't think Loom influenced Mist at all. And I don't think you can say that they're necessarily part of the same family tree, but they're coming at it from the same direction of simplifying interfaces as much as possible, simplifying puzzles as much as possible, by which I don't mean trying to make them super easy. But what I mean is trying to make them spring from just a very small number of variables. A parallel evolution of similar concepts. Right. Loom had striking visuals for its day. I mean, obviously, it looks nothing like Mist. It's not a multimedia game. It's not like that. But it had very striking visuals as well. And it also had a story that people considered very interesting. It was a very thoughtful, introspective, interesting kind of product. But as a game, it was a failure because it cost 40 bucks and you got five hours for your 40 bucks. That's the thing. So that was one direction that they went towards further streamlining the adventure game in 1990. The other path that they took, which was a more successful path, was Ron Gilbert in his own follow-up to Maniac Mansion. That, of course, was the secret of Monkey Island. With Maniac Mansion, he saw King's Quest and he was like, ah, this is dumb. But in the rush to try to get that game finished, he didn't have a lot of time to expound on his ideas. He knew he wanted something where the interface made more sense. He knew he wanted something that was not designed to frustrate and murder the player at every turn. But he didn't have a lot of time to really refine that because he was in the trenches. But after Maniac Mansion was done, he had time to really think about this. And he came up with a legendary document, one of the first real philosophical manifestos on game design ever created, I think. Not that people before this didn't have their own philosophies on game design, but just one of the first times that someone not only came up with a complete game design philosophy, but then published it and disseminated it. It was published in December 1989 in something called the Journal of Computer Game Design which was related to the Computer Game Development Conference. It was kind of a print publication that worked hand-in-hand with the conference. And he called it Why Adventure Games Suck. In this tome, he came up with all of the things that he thought were terrible about the way adventure games were made. Things like the fact that they could throw you into a zombie state when you didn't pick up an item, 
or that they killed you all the time, or that you had to play through a game, die, reload an earlier save just to figure out what's going on. Puzzles that make no logical sense, puzzles that don't work within the context or experience of the person maybe playing them. A good example of that is the infamous baseball puzzle in Zork 2, where there was a maze that was basically based on a baseball diamond and knowing the rules of baseball. And so if you were someone that didn't know baseball, you would never be able to solve that puzzle. He came up with all of these reasons why adventure games sucked, and he thought about it really hard, and he decided that even though Maniac Mansion got himself a lot of the way there, his next game would get him completely there. That was Secret of Monkey Island. And at the time, fantasy games were huge, obviously. I mean, the King's Quest thing was all fantasy games. It made sense to do something fantasy, but he wanted to do a fantasy that wasn't a typical fantasy. All the quote-unquote fantasy was swords and sorcery. Typically. You don't have much pirate apart from maybe Treasure Island. Right. Uh, when, and I'm just and I'm talking about in video games, oh, yeah. too. I mean, fantasy basically meant sword and sorcery. When applied to video games, yeah. And in other media, you had other yeah. stuff that would come in with fantasy, but typically it's always swords, knights, wizards, fireballs, dragons. Right. So he wanted something that felt fantastical, but wasn't what people considered fantasy. And he also really loved the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. What he really liked about it is kind of the sense of depth that was behind it. I mean, you're force-fed through this thing, and it's over in 10 minutes or 15 minutes or however long it lasts. But it feels like, and this is kind of the brilliance of Disney Imagineering, it feels like if you could get off the ride and walk into it, that there's just so much more there. And of course, there really isn't much more than you see. That's Disney magic. But he was enamored by the idea of it, and he felt that there was a fantastical element or a fantasy there that could be explored. So he thought, okay, so for my next game, to make something fantasy that isn't fantasy, I'm going to do pirates. So he came up with Secret of Monkey Island, which makes fun of pirate tropes and Caribbean tropes and Pirates of the Caribbean tropes, the ride specifically, and riffs on pirate movies. One of the things that's very fondly remembered, insult sword fighting, which is just a great mechanic where instead of winning sword fights by stabbing the other person, you win it by delivering the perfect comeback to their insult attempt. He came up with that because he always felt that in swashbuckling movies, Errol Flynn and Burt Lancaster kind of stuff, it always felt like the combatants were talking to each other almost more than they were fighting each other. And so he thought, wouldn't it be hilarious if the wordplay was the total point of the fight? So he came up with these beautiful humorous touches, these vivid, interesting characters. It's just a magical game, and he paired it with this new approach to adventure game design, which is don't kill the player, don't zombie state the player, don't dead end them. It may take him a while to figure out the puzzles. He may have to go back and forth, try this, try that, but he never has to go back to a prior save state. You cannot die in Monkey Island. There is literally one place where they quote-unquote kill you, and there's this running joke that Guybrush Threepwood, the main character, can hold his breath for 10 minutes, because he says that that's his big skill. Like, he wants to be a pirate, but he's not a great sailor, he's not a strong guy, he's not a smart guy, he's not a good sword fighter, but he tells everyone, but I can hold my breath for 10 minutes. So there's one point where you get thrown off a pier and tied to an idol to weigh you down. If you stay there for 10 minutes, he runs out of air, because it's part of the gag. But otherwise, you cannot die. Nothing kills you. You can keep trying until you finally figure it out. There's even one place where they do a little spoof of a Sierra game. There's this one cliff on Monkey Island itself where if you walk on a certain part, the rocks give way under you and you fall to your quote-unquote death and a game over screen comes up. But if you wait around for another couple of moments, Guybrush comes back up and is actually still alive. They're even making fun of the arbitrary deaths in adventure games. I think. It's been a while, but I think he, like, lands on a rubber tree and the rubber tree bounces him back up or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's silly, but, uh, you know, they're making fun of the death in adventure games. So Monkey Island is really the purest expression of this LucasArts game. It's a refined scum engine. It's a refined Ron Gilbert adventure game methodology. And this kind of sets the tone for what a graphical adventure game can be and what a LucasArts game can be. So that's kind of the rise of the LucasArts adventure game. That's how the LucasArts adventure game 
gets shaped as a reaction to what is going on in adventure games at that time from other companies. Next time, because why not? I could rush through the rest of the games and we could do it as one episode, but why bother? We have to put two of these out a month. Why rush it? Not like we're <laughs> lacking in tape. We have some sort of production overlord who stands over both of us going, please put out more episodes. Well, <laughs> technically we have patrons that do that, but <laughs> yes, mostly we're beholden to ourselves and usually it's me going poking Alex going, hey, we need to record. <laughs> so next time we'll look at the back half of this and we'll look at how they kind of sustained themselves at this height, how they took what Ron Gilbert did in Monkey Island and iterated on it and had some great successes, but then how that ultimately wasn't sustainable for more than a few years, both because of changes within LucasArts itself, Lucasfilm Games itself, and more importantly, because of changes in the wider industry. In that case, we will see you next time on They Create Worlds with LucasArts Part 2. Bye-bye. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Volum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 